From Studio Sweden comes The Regent, a premium on-ear Bluetooth pair of headphones. I listen to a ton of music and podcasts, and I think these headphones are rad. I'm a bit fussy about technology, and there are three things that I look for in a pair of headphones. Rich sound, which includes great bass, that's really important to me. Bluetooth that quickly connects, and solid battery life and comfort. Not only do the headphones have rich bass, the sound is super clear and it's so good. Connecting to Bluetooth is super easy and fast. They have over 24 hours of active battery life and 20 days of standby, which is great because I've had some wireless headphones that don't hold their charge, and these are awesome and reliable. The Regents are comfy and stylish. Uh, I wear glasses during my waking hours, and these headphones feel great with a pair of glasses on. My ears don't hurt like they do with typical over-the-ear headphones because they're designed really well, and you can change out the caps to create a personalized, modern look. Scandinavian design rules. As a bonus, there's a secret feature that's really rad about these headphones, and that is that they have an auxiliary port with the cable included, and that makes it super flexible in, in case you don't have Bluetooth on your laptop and you just want to stay connected. Studio Sweden has worldwide shipping, so please visit their website at studiosweden.com and use coupon code BASED, that's B-A-S-E-D, for 15% off any purchase. Go check them out. On May 18, 1927, Maria Martin left home to meet her lover, William Corder, at the Red Barn, a local landmark in Polstead, England. One year later, her stepmother, Anne Martin, has a series of prophetic dreams which led to the discovery of Maria's body buried under the barn. The Red Barn murder, as it became known, captured the public's interest and made the barn a tourist destination. In 1935, the story was first adapted for the screen in the British melodrama Murder in the Red Barn. This is based on a true crime. I'm Chelsea, and I love true crime. And I'm David, and I love horror movies. And welcome to episode 18. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving. We certainly did. We did, yeah. I'm still full. As you noticed in the beginning of the episode, we have a really exciting sponsor sponsoring this episode and another one in December, and that's Studio Sweden Headphones. I'm not lying when I say that these headphones are actually really great. I had heard them advertised on a couple of other podcasts and I was curious about them. And when they emailed me, I jumped at the opportunity to try out a pair. And we've been loving our Regent over the ear headphones and stealing them back and forth. <laughs> so it's been great. So thank you, Studio. And be sure to check them out at the link in our show notes. Use our code Treat Yourself. Buy yourself a Christmas present. So before we get into this week's episode, why don't you thank our newest five-star reviewers, David? Oh, yeah. Thank you, five-star reviewers. Uh, Sass, S-A-S, number one. <laughs> Sarah underscore Rita underscore. Yeah, she's the uh, host of Good Nightmares, which is a really awesome new podcast out of Australia. Very cool. And also, thank you, Twitch Pod. That's Joel from This Week in True Crime History. You rock, Joel. And Cold Traces. Another awesome podcast. Yes, thank you. And the Nasty Snacks Podcast. Another awesome podcast. We've been getting lots of love from podcasts, and we've been giving it too. So thank you guys so much. 
Uh, we also had some correct guesses um, on Instagram. We have uh, Rin Jerbecca. Wait. <laughs> we have Rin Jerbecca on Instagram. Chippy TFT, yes. Yes, although she did admit to Googling it. This was a pretty obscure one. I wasn't really expecting people to, to guess it. But we did have someone who did guess it correctly on Twitter, I think without Googling, or maybe she just didn't fess up to it. Yes, and that's Conceptual Alice. Yes. So the teaser Tuesday for this week was a sketch of a barn, the barn, the red barn. Oh, spoiler. Oh, wait, no, never mind. Yes. We had a lot of people guessing uh, the chicken coop murders, lots of guesses of Hinter Kaifek, the creepy unsolved axe murder. But this is an old case. This is a one-off murder from the 1800s. I really wanted to change pace after all of our serial killer episodes. And this was one actually my dad brought my attention to. He probably heard it first in the Tom Waits song. But this is the murder of Maria Martin, which the story surrounding it is usually called the murder in the red barn or the red barn murder. So why don't we get into it? Maria Martin was born on July 24, 1801, to Thomas Martin, a mole catcher from Polstead, a small town in Suffolk, England. Although her family didn't have many means, she received a good education. She was also exceedingly pretty, and by 1826, she had two romantic relationships which resulted in children. One child died in infancy, and the other, Thomas Henry, who was three and a half at the time of Maria's murder, was being raised by her parents. His father was a local dignitary, Peter Matthews, who sent Maria five pounds per quarter for the child's upkeep. In March of 1826, when Maria was 24 years old, she began a relationship with 22-year-old William Quarter. William had a reputation for being a ladies' man and troublemaker. He was also the younger brother of Thomas Quarter, who had been father to Maria's child who had died. At school, William had earned the nickname Foxy due to his slyness. He passed a forged check, stole a pig from a neighboring village, and sold his father's livestock, unbeknownst to him. Due to this behavior, he was sent to London temporarily, but when his brother Thomas drowned while trying to cross a frozen lake, he was called back home. His father and two more brothers all died within 18 months, so William remained in Polstead to run the family farm with his mother. William wanted to keep the relationship with Maria a secret, but she quickly became pregnant again, and in 1827, she gave birth to their child. But the child died shortly after birth. Maria wanted to marry William, and at first he seemed keen on the idea as well. However, William said that he heard rumors that the authorities were planning to prosecute Maria for having children out of wedlock, so he suggested they secretly elope to Ipswich. They made these plans in front of Maria's stepmother, Anne Martin. Initially, the date was set to be May 16th, 1827. But William delayed the date first to Thursday and then to Friday. On Friday, May 18th, William visited Maria at the Martins' cottage and told her that they must leave at once because he'd heard that the constable now had a warrant to prosecute her, although there is no record of this warrant ever existing. Maria was concerned about being seen leaving, so William told her to dress in men's clothing and meet him at the Red Barn, a local landmark less than half a mile from the Martins' home. He said that he would carry her belongings there, and once she met him there, she could change before they left for Ipswich. Again, her stepmother Anne was present as these plans were made. Shortly after William left the house, Maria headed out for the barn and was not heard from again. Although Maria was gone, 
William actually remained in town. When Maria's family and friends asked him where she was, William claimed that she had left for Ipswich ahead of him, and he feared that his relatives would be angry if he brought her back to town as his wife due to her uh, kind of shoddy reputation. Eventually, the pressure to bring Maria back grew to be too much, and William left town. He wrote letters to the Martins claiming that the pair had met up and they were living in marital bliss together on the Isle of Wight, although each of these letters was postmarked from London. When the family asked why Maria wasn't sending letters herself, William claimed that she'd hurt her hand and then would later say that she had written and sent letters, but they must have gotten lost in the mail. That does sound suspicious. Yes, that old excuse. Maria's family was rightfully suspicious, and in March of 1828, Anne began to have dreams about Maria. For three successive nights, she dreamt that Maria had been killed and buried in the Red Barn. On April 19th of 1828, she finally convinced her husband to go to the barn. Mr. Martin and his friend, Mr. Pryke, took a spade and rake and went to the spot which Anne indicated from her dream. Quickly, they discovered the body of Maria Martin. She'd been buried just one and a half feet under the floor of the barn. Although she was badly decomposed, she was quickly identified by her hair and clothing and a distinctive missing tooth. Wrapped tightly around the neck of her body was a green handkerchief known to belong to none other than William Corder. Oh, what a slinker stinker. Yeah, Foxy himself. Well, an inquest was carried out at the Cock Inn at Polstead. It actually turned out to be difficult to determine the precise cause of death, at least at the time. In addition to the handkerchief around the neck, which would indicate strangulation, her body had gunshot wounds and a stab wound to the eye socket, which may have been from a pickaxe or possibly a short sword, which William was known to possess. It's also possible that this wound occurred when Maria's father was digging up the body. Still, it seemed quite obvious to anyone that William Corder was involved. The constable of Polstead received William's address from one of his friends and, with help from London policeman James Lee, they quickly found him living in London, where he was working as master to Everly Grove, a boarding house. He had also recently married a woman named Mary Moore, who he'd met after placing a singles ad in the paper. This ad read, in part, A private gentleman, aged 24, entirely independent, whose disposition is not to be exceeded, has lately lost the chief of his family by the hand of Providence, which has occasioned, amongst the remainder, circumstances the most disagreeable to relate. To any female of respectability, who would study for domestic comfort, and who is willing to confide her future happiness to one in every way qualified to render the marriage state desirable, as the advisor is in affluence. Many happy marriages have taken place through means similar to this now resorted to. It is hoped none will answer through impertinent curiosity, but should this meet the eye of any agreeable lady who feels desirous of meeting with a sociable, tender, kind, and sympathizing companion, she will find this advertisement worthy of notice. Honor and secrecy may be depended upon. Isn't that the same advertisement that you placed to meet me? <laughs> yeah? No, no. Mine was more romantic than that. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I know a lot of people looking for a sociable, tender, kind, and sympathizing companion, but maybe not one who uh, murdered his, his ex. All right. In order to not rouse suspicion, Lee went to the boarding house pretending to be a father who was interested in boarding a daughter. Once he met with William Corder, he informed him of the charges and placed him under arrest. William was taken back to Suffolk and placed on trial in Shire Hall at Bury St. Edmunds. 
by this time, the case had become wildly popular in the media, which you could almost see a case like this becoming kind of popular nowadays. I think he was a man with money and a lot of means. And, you know, she was kind of a a poor country girl that he murdered and then went and married someone else. It's very uh, Hollywood. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, good point. So the trial began on August 7th of 1928 and hotels in the area had begun to fill up on July 21st. So many people wanted to attend the trial that they had to give out tickets for admittance and people that couldn't make it inside crowded around the doors. The judge, Baron William Alexander, and court officials often had to push their way bodily through these crowds to get inside. Baron Alexander complained about the media frenzy, saying that the coverage was, quote, to the manifest detriment of the prisoner at the bar. Because the inquest could not determine an exact cause of death, William Corder was charged with, quote, murdering Maria Martin by feloniously and willfully shooting her with a pistol through the body and likewise stabbing her with a dagger. In total, he was indicted on nine charges, including forgery, to avoid having a mistrial. Maria's father, stepmother, and brother all testified during the trial. Her stepmother, Anne, testified not only to the conversations she'd been privy to about the elopement and the non-existent warrant for Maria's arrest, but also about the dreams which led to the discovery of Maria's body. Her father, Thomas Martin, testified about digging up Maria's body, and her younger brother, 10-year-old George Martin, testified to seeing William Corder the night of Maria's murder with a loaded pistol prior to the murder taking place, and later with a pickaxe leaving the barn. Lee also testified that he had found pistols, incriminating letters, and a French passport at William's London residence. For a motive, the prosecution proposed that William had never intended to elope with Mary, but that he was concerned because she had intimate knowledge of his criminal dealings. There was also speculation that the two had fought over the payments which Maria was receiving from the father of her young son. Apparently, William had intercepted one of the letters and stole the five pounds, leading to a huge fight between them. Finally, there were some rumors about the death of their child being suspicious. Although the infant was supposed to be buried in Sudbury, there was no record of the burial there or anywhere else. William Corder initially pled not guilty. He claimed that Maria had been depressed after the death of their child and that after the pair had met in the barn, she flew into a rage, saying that they would never be happy together and that William was too proud to marry her because his mother would be ashamed. He said that he became highly irate, and in the moment of passion, he said that he would not marry her and left the barn. After leaving, he heard a gunshot and returned to the barn to find that she had killed herself with his pistol. Recognizing how suspicious it would look, he hid the body and lied about Maria leaving town. After telling his story, William appealed directly to any doubts the jury might have, saying, quote, It may be asked to why I have not called evidence to prove the facts I have stated. But gentlemen, I put it to you whether things do not sometimes take place, which are only known to the parties between whom they happen, and what direct proof can I give when the only person who knew of these facts is no more. He also said that any other wounds to her body must have occurred while she was being disinterred. Despite his strong appeal and testimony to his character by several witnesses for the defense, the jury took only 35 minutes after it retired to return with a guilty verdict. Baron Alexander sentenced William Corder to death and addressed him, saying, quote, that you be taken back to the prison from whence you came and that you be taken from thence on Monday next to a place of execution and that you there be hanged by the neck until you are dead. 
and that your body shall afterwards be dissected and anatomized. And may the Lord God Almighty of his infinite goodness have mercy on your soul. After three days in prison and multiple meetings with his wife, the prison chaplain, the prison warden, and the prison governor, John Orridge, William finally decided to confess to his crimes. This decision seemed to be especially influenced by John Orridge, who could see that William was struggling with the decision and stressed to him that if he were executed before confession, it would add greatly to his crime. William said that he wished he had confessed his guilt sooner, but that he was following the advice of his legal counsel. That evening, he made and signed the following confession with Orridge as a witness. Barry Jail, August 10th, 1828. Condemned cell, Sunday evening, half past 11. I acknowledge being guilty on the death of poor Maria Martin by shooting her with a pistol. The particulars are as follows. When we left her father's house, we began quarreling about the burial of the child, she apprehending that the place wherein it was deposited would be found out. The quarrel continued for about three quarters of an hour upon this and about other subjects. A scuffle ensued, and during the scuffle, and at the time I think that she had hold of me, I took the pistol from the side pocket of my velveteen jacket and fired. She fell and died in an instant. I never saw even a struggle. I was overwhelmed with agitation and dismay. The body fell near the front doors of the floor of the barn. A vast quantity of blood issued from the wound and ran on to the floor and through the crevices. Having determined to bury the body in the barn about two hours after she was dead, I went and borrowed the spade of Mrs. Stowe. But before I went there, I dragged the body from the barn into the chaff house and locked up the barn. I returned again to the barn and began to dig the hole. But the spade being a bad one and the earth firm and hard, I was obliged to go home for a pickaxe and a better spade, of which I dug the hole and then buried the body. I think I dragged the body by the handkerchief that was tied around her neck. It was dark when I finished covering up the body. I went the next day and washed the blood from off the barn floor. I declare to Almighty God, I had no sharp in instrument about me and that no other wound but the one made by the pistol was inflicted by me. I have been guilty of great idleness and at times led a dissolute life, but I hope through the mercy of God to be forgiven. On August the 11th of 1828, William Quarter was taken to the gallows in Barry St. Edmunds. He was so weak that he could not stand without support. Shortly before noon, he was hanged before a crowd reported to be anywhere from 7,000 to 20,000 persons in size. Before the hood was put over his head, Quarter said, quote, I am guilty. My sentence is just. I deserve my fate. And may God have mercy on my soul. After an hour, his body was cut down by the hangman, John Foxton, who kept Quarter's trousers and stockings. Foxton also sold pieces of the rope to onlookers. His body was taken back to the courtroom at Shire Hall, where the trial had taken place. His body was slit open along the abdomen, and over 5,000 people filed through the room before the doors were shut at 6 p.m. in order to view his body. Now, that's not a tradition that has uh, carried on now, is it? No, definitely not. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. I honestly don't think I would want to see that. I don't think I could even go witness a hanging. I know that. No, you like pee yourself I, and stuff. It sounds terrible. And I'm pretty morbidly curious, but that just seems I don't think I'd ever want to see someone actually die, even if they're awful. No. So the uh, next day, Porter's body was taken to Cambridge University for dissection and postmortem in front of an audience of students and physicians. Supposedly, a galvanic battery was brought in and experiments were carried out to observe muscle contractions resulting from galvanism of the body. 
after dissection, the skeleton was reassembled and the surgeons conducted a phrenological examination of his skull. They concluded that he was developed in the areas of secretiveness, acquisitiveness, destructiveness, philoprogenitiveness, and imitativeness. And he was not developed in the areas of benevolence or veneration. And I do believe this branch of science has turned out to be complete BS. I was going to say, those don't sound very technical. No, and you have to wonder whether those same conclusions would have come if they didn't know it was the body of infamous murderer. Yeah, they're like, this brain looks a little green or weird or brown. But I do love those. You've seen those busts, right, where they have like the sections of the skull marked out for what it's supposed to mean. I wonder what mine is. Can I request that on my will? It's all awesomeness. Oh, yeah. Just the whole thing. Big dotted circle around it just says awesomeness. That sounds right. So quarter skeleton was at first used as a teaching aid in the West Suffolk Hospital, but was later put on display in the Hunterian Museum in the Royal College of Surgeons of England, where it remained until 2004 when it was finally removed and cremated. That's a long time. That is a long time. I wonder why they decided to just inter it. Or, well, not inter, sorry. Just cremate it. Yeah. I'm not sure if it was at the request of a relative or something. It, it does seem a bit unfair. I know that there are serial killers and murderers whose, I think there's someone whose like head is on display in a museum, but I feel like you need to get permission from the family or something. So maybe they never got that and got called out. But there was a bust made of quarter, which was used as a tool to study phrenology. And several copies of his death mask were made. One is kept at the Moises Hall Museum in Bury St. Edmunds, and another copy is kept in the dungeons of Norwich Castle. William Quarter's skin, wait for it, was tanned by one of the surgeons, George Creed, and it was used to bind a book containing an account of the Red Barn murder. (laughs) That's very dramatic. Yes, it is. (laughs) Wow. So interest in this case continued far beyond the execution of Quarter. Plays and novels were written about the case, including a story by Charles Dickens, which was included in his magazine all the year round. Often these stories would embellish the evilness of William Quarter and portray Maria as a completely naive country maiden who was seduced by Quarter. The murder turned the Red Barn into a tourist destination, and soon the barn itself was reduced to toothpicks by souvenir hunters, who also descended upon Maria Martin's grave, chipping off pieces and taking them away until just a rocky nub remained. I do believe I I stole toothpicks and rocky nubs from my sources because they're just so descriptive. Oh, yeah. I just read this. Apparently, they uh, they cremated his skeleton because he was, in fact, so evil. His skeleton started walking around. Oh, yes. You just read that. I didn't come across that in my research. No, I just made that up. Yeah. (laughs) So I really have I have a couple of theories I want to talk about. But first, I wanted to ask you, because there has been some speculation later on whether you think he did it. Is it possible that he's innocent? I mean, possible, perhaps likely. No. I think he did it. He sounds it sounds like all the evidence is stacked against him. I mean, maybe not a ton of physical evidence, but while he may have been pressured to confess, I mean, it just it seems like the simplest explanation in this case is what happened. Yeah. And see, without the confession, I would have a harder time believing that he did it. So as far as I can tell, 
what you read. So his kind of plea to the jury is actually what ha- it's hard. There's you know, some stuff has been sensationalized, but I believe that was his word for word plea to the jury. And I personally find it to be very strong. I think that it's true that there were only two people in that barn. And, you know, how do we know that he's not telling the truth? But you know, when he finally confesses, I just find it hard to believe that, you know, since he's going to be killed either way, there's not really any reason for him to confess unless he's actually done it. And he wants to kind of clear his conscience and seems to want to make things right with, you know, his religious beliefs. So I think he did it, but I kind of question whether he should have been convicted, or at least I question whether he would have been convicted nowadays. Well, it seems like they they threw the book at him just in case one of them didn't stick, right? Yes. So even in his final confession, he says that, you know, that stab wound, you know, he did not stab. He only shot her. I've read some accounts where they said that underneath the green handkerchief, there was like another cut to her throat. But I I didn't see that at a lot of places. So I'm not sure, you know, if that is true. But all right. You know, it's I think that because this happened in the 1820s, there's not going to be really forensic evidence. So if he says that she shot herself with his pistol and then he buried the body thinking it looks suspicious, there's not much by way of evidence to prove otherwise. And there was so much media surrounding this case that it really seemed like he didn't have much of a chance to convince a jury. Yeah. Could you imagine if he got out? I mean, just the the crowd that turned up during the trial and then for his hanging, like he would have been chased down and vigilante justice would have occurred. Yes. I think 20,000 vigilantes would have just descended (laughs) upon him. Yeah. So it's, I think he pretty obviously didn't have a fair trial, but I guess I also think he did it because of that confession. But there are some other theories. Um, This is actually my favorite. And I do kind of wonder about this one. And we we haven't talked about this at all, but some doubts were raised about Maria's stepmother. She was only a year older than Maria. And people think that maybe she and William Corder may have been having an affair and that they planned the murder of Maria together because she was a hindrance to them pursuing anything, which, you know, Maria's body probably never would have been found without Anne Martin having those dreams. And although I'm not sure how much this has been exaggerated in stories about the event, but supposedly she pointed out the exact spot on the on the floor where Maria Martin was buried. Interesting. Which I feel like it'd be one thing to say she's somewhere in the barn because she knew that Maria was going to meet William Corder in the barn. And after that, she disappeared. So I think you could make a guess that, oh, she maybe was killed and is maybe buried in the barn. But to know the exact spot seems kind of suspicious. And also there's the fact that Anne Martin's dreams started just a few days after Corder married his uh, his new wife. This is a little bit of a double cross. So or not perhaps. a double cross, just a cross. But you have to wonder if that were true, why William Corder wouldn't have said that in trial. If he had any sort of proof whatsoever that she was involved. I know I would certainly throw another person under the bus if it were me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you better believe it. Don't plan a murder with me. Uh oh. So the other theory which we did touch upon a little bit was that the murder was maybe the result of Corder and Maria Martin's child dying under suspicious circumstances. They claimed that they had taken their child to be buried in a cemetery in Sudbury, but there were no records of this and no trace was ever found of the child's burial site. 
So, you know, William Corder did write in his confession that they had been arguing about, you know, what to do with their child's body. I guess they had maybe killed the child and then buried the body somewhere and they were worried about someone finding it and realizing what they'd done or something. So and then finally, there's an actress, Carolyn Palmer, who appeared in some dramas based on the case and also researched the murder for fun, thought that uh, perhaps a local gypsy woman had killed Maria Martin. That's no, that's it. (laughs) It was like a bullet point on a page that I'm not sure, but I thought it kind of ties in because there's gypsies in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. And they play a pretty big role. But before we get to the movie, I want to take a minute to tell you what I love about our sponsor, Studio Sweden. Before we get into the movie discussion, I want to take a minute to tell you what I love about Studio Sweden headphones. I've been using the Regent model, which is their premier on-ear model, and it's honestly the first time I've noticed a real improvement in sound quality when switching between headphones. For both podcasts and music, the sound is incredibly rich and clear. They're also super comfortable, even over glasses, which is nice when I have to spend six hours straight wearing them to edit the podcast. Probably my favorite feature, though, is the auxiliary cable. I've been using Bluetooth headphones since Apple got rid of their headphone jack on my phone, RIP, but neither my personal laptop nor my work laptop can use Bluetooth. It's so nice now only needing to have one pair of headphones. Right now, we're partnering with Studio Sweden to offer, based on a true crime listener's 15% off their purchase by using our discount code BASED. In addition to the on-ear Regent model, they have a variety of earbuds, both Bluetooth and corded, all with really sleek modern designs. They also ship worldwide totally free, so get all your Christmas shopping done in one fell swoop. And don't forget to use our discount code BASED for 15% off. You can find a link to their online store in our show notes or go to studiosweden.com. All right, so we're going to jump into a discussion about the movie in just a second. So sit tight. We'll be right back. My girl. I didn't do it. I tell you, I swear I didn't do it. William Corder, I arrest you for the murder of Mariah Martin. Let me go. Let me go. I'll drop the first man who tries to stop me. (laughs) Not so brave, eh? There's only one shot in that pistol corner. At best you can but kill one of us, then you'll be taken. Yes, but which will be the one? You, Martin, eh? Would you like to go and join your beautiful Mariah? <laughs> oh, don't stare at me like that, Mariah. You've trapped me. Your hands are reaching out from the grave, dragging me down, down. Oh, but you're too late. You're too late. He's mad. Close your eyes, Mariah. Close them. They haunt me. Why? Oh, I, I didn't want to kill you. But you forced me to. You forced me to. You forced me to. She made me do it, I tell you. She made me do it. She made me do it. She made me do it. <laughs> Would you like to look upon your executioner? Yes. You! I warned you, Corda. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and blood for blood. And we're back. 
Squire William Quarter wins the affection of Maria Martin, but their happiness is cut short when she falls pregnant and demands that Quarter marry her. At first he agrees, but his wicked mind is planning her murder in the Red Barn. When Maria turns up for their secret assignment, she is murdered and buried beneath the barn floor. Squire Quarter then departs for London, supposedly eloping with Maria Martin for a new life. But will Maria's rotting corpse stay hidden within the Red Barn? Wow, they actually use the phrase rotting corpse? Yeah, that's from the back of like the international DVD. Oh, I'm kind of surprised there is a DVD of this movie. Yeah, it's like black and white, old-timey uh, transfer. Yeah, so that's kind of an overview of the movie uh, from the back of the, <laughs> the DVD. This movie has not had a wide release. Uh, it is a challenge to find. It came out in 1935, so it is a black and white talkie, as they call them at the time. Seems like right on the cusp, maybe a, an early talkie. I would not have been surprised to see that acting with some text in between, a bit over the top. Yeah, yet and highly enjoyable. Indeed, as you said, the from silent film era to talkie, it was directed in uh, and released in 1935 by Milton Rossmer, and he was a British actor. He was a screenwriter and also a director. So he performed in both silent films and talkies, and is considered to be one of the more successful actor, director, writers of the time who made that transition. A lot of performers and people who were in Films during the silent era found themselves out of work when sound came into the picture. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a whole movie about that called The Artist. Did you see oh, it? Oh, The Artist. I yes. did. Yeah. Uh, I really loved it. So that was just 2011 and won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And it was excellent. It was about the, I see, was a silent film star, but turned out to have a very thick accent. So when it went to talkies, he was SOL. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that was, I can't imagine, you know, with changing technology and as things quickly go out of vogue with society and with audiences, you know, it's like hard to keep up. I think that is true today. And us as audience members, you know, I think maybe a lot of filmgoers have not seen a ton of black and white movies today. I certainly have not. I know you're a bit more, what did you say, educated in terms of film history and seeing a lot of that for the sake of the history. Whereas I think the only silent film I've seen is Nosferatu, and I've seen a handful of black and white films. I was fortunate, too, in that my dad really liked a lot of the old black and white pictures. So. Turner Classic Movies. Yeah, so everything from the 20s to the 40s through the 50s, all those movies, a lot of those movies I have seen. So I had not seen this picture, however. Um, so not as familiar with the filmmakers and the stars. In kind of cross-referencing the performers are in this movie, they have all have long lists of credits for movies I really haven't heard of. So we're not going to really go in depth into them as character actors and, and some of the stuff they've been in other than one standout. And that is the actor uh, who plays Squire William Quarter. He is an actor named Todd Slaughter, which is perfect. An excellent name for an uh, actor playing a murderer. Yes. Or just any murderer. Last name Slaughter. Oh, and he performed in some titles that really stood out to me. So besides playing in this, he was Sweeney Todd in the 1936 adaptation, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. I think we might need to watch that. Oh, yeah. After seeing him in this, imagining him playing Sweeney Todd, like, yes, give me him over Johnny Depp any day. We'll get into his performance when, uh, yeah, we talk about that. Um, he played in a film called Sexton Blake and the Hooded Terror. 
um, and another movie called Horror Maniacs. So Maria Martin is played by Sophie Stewart. We have Father Thomas Martin, Maria's father, played by DJ Williams. Maria's mother, Mrs. Martin, played by Claire Greet. We mentioned the aspect of the gypsy culture in the film, and one of the characters that has an important part of the proceedings named Carlos is played by Eric Portman. We have Timothy Winterbottom. Ha ha ha. Uh, <laughs> yes, he's definitely the comedic relief in the movie. Yes, he's played by Gerard Tyrell. And then Nan, the maid, is played by actor Anne Trevor. Being an older film, there has not been as many dissertations as some of the movies that we've covered so far have. But I did find some interesting trivia. And one of the things that Wow, was fascinating. And I had not heard of this crime writer, but crime writer Ruth Rindle. Have you heard of her? I don't know if anyone out there has. No, I haven't. So apparently she at one time bought the Red Barn um, in the village of Polstead in Suffolk. And her, I guess her formal title is Baroness Rindle of Babre. Yep. Yep. Um, nice. That's, that's my formal title too. Oh, cool. Right on. You're Baroness. The film is one of the earliest documented U.S. telecasts of a film, and that was in Los Angeles on February 27th of 1949. That was a Sunday on KTSL Channel 2. So this was an early example of a movie being broadcast on television. That was really neat. Yeah. Um, Another note, and I couldn't find any other context to back this up, but it was that the villain's scalp, which... Now that I say it out loud, ties us back to what we were talking about, about the book Bound in His Flesh, but possibly not inked in his blood, you guys. Um, well, I didn't see anywhere that it's not inked in his blood. Okay. Well, hey, you never know. Just uh, watch Don't out for read the- it. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they open up, make sure there weren't any Candarian demons inside. Um, anyway, it's on exhibition at the uh, Bury St. Edmunds Museum. Let's go see it. Yeah, so you too can see uh, William Cordor's scalp on display. No taglines, though? No, I, I don't think they're writing taglines at this point. Yeah, nope, no taglines. It was just, uh, yeah, no, I got nothing. I can't even think of anything to make up. <laughs> I was trying to think of one to make up, too, and I can't think of any. If any of you out there can think of one, tweet it at us, at True Crime Based. The Red Barn. It's not cranberry sauce. Oh, wait, um... The Red Barn. That's not paint. Yeah? That's perfect. I love it. All All right. right. Sold. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, we're just going to jump into what we thought and then kind of walk through the movie, uh, spoil it away, kind of talk about how events unfolded. So, yeah, Chelsea, what'd you think? I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I did not know if I would. It's one of the oldest movies that I've seen, and it was interesting to me kind of what was really different compared to more modern movies and what was kind of similar in terms of what they changed from the true story. They went the pretty typical route, I think, of adaptations of Murder in the Red Barn, where Maria is a bit more of like a innocent, naive country maiden, although, you know, she does have multiple suitors, which is true to the real story. And they made uh, William Corder, he's very like comic book villain, but very enjoyable to watch and they did add this felt very modern to me um they added kind of a romantic rival we'll say so maria has 
this gypsy who's in love with her named Carlos, but her father doesn't approve. And one scene that we'll get to, but I'm going to spoil it anyway. It's kind of right before she's murdered and she's given this opportunity to run away with Carlos and decides not to, which ultimately leads directly to her murder at the hands of William Corder. And that to me felt like a very modern trope. So it was interesting seeing it in a movie that old. Yeah, I just, I really enjoyed it. It helped that it was kind of short. It was, what, an hour long, <laughs> like less than like maybe an hour and five minutes. And and yeah, I, I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. It had a spectacular, I think once, you know, the things start kind of crumbling down around William Corder, the like discovery of the body, I felt like the pacing was excellent. You know, although they changed it, they kind of got rid of the prophetic dreams. The way it all unfolds is is excellent. And that I'll save for our film discussion. But what did you think, David? Well, it's interesting because I I was really captivated by um, William Corder's character. And for an, an older movie, he you can feel that he's a sinister character from very, very, very early on. You know, we'll talk about this when we talk about the film. But I I loved him as a villain, but I also felt a lot of sympathy for Maria, for Maria Martin. And her portrayal by Sophie Stewart, I thought, was really great in terms of William Corder kind of seducing in a very evil manner. Um, it was heartbreaking watching her downfall. I agree with you with, like, Carlos being a great character to act almost as, like, maybe she has a way out, maybe she's going to escape from this situation. Because the murder, I mean, it happens fairly far into the film. I think it's past the halfway part, it feels like, anyway. Yes, for sure. I think that they do kind of flesh out Maria's character more. She feels very modern for the time. You know, it's a, the movie's taking place, you know, when the murder took place. So in the in the 1820s. But she seems to have a lot of kind of personality and drive. And you know, it, it makes it kind of that much sadder to watch her kind of fall into the clutches of this really awful person yeah cool well um let's jump into the movie so it's interesting you know, we're, t- we're talking about the time that this film came out in 1935 it's already got a couple of things maybe going against it from a you know modern standpoint it's black and white it's from the 30s it's from you know the creative team are not i feel i feel like super well known and it's a hard film to get hold of and then it starts off kind of like a play so the it was fir- weird. I I didn't know much about it. There's one scene available on YouTube that they say is the trailer, but it's really just the scene from the movie where they find Bria's body. So that's actually the scene that you just listened to. And I had I was wondering when they did that. I was I was wondering if it was going to be like a stage production, like a filmed stage production, because I knew that there was a play um, that was based on the murder in the Red Barn, but but it was not. It was just a very strange introduction. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I hadn't read a plot summary or anything. So so I was definitely like, what's going on here? I mean, I, we had seen the clip and I was like, OK, well, obviously there it is looks like a film at some point in the movie, but I don't know when. But it jumps into like this huge party that's like a dance. It's a party inside the Red Barn and they like establish the barn as a character. And it's like, here it is. This is the Red Barn and everyone's happy. And, you know, there's a lot going on. And and I, I felt like that did a great job of just building suspense. And it and it it set the the location as an important character in the movie. Yes, I think even if you know nothing going in, you know the title, which the full title is actually Maria Martin or the Murder in the Red Barn. But it's 
usually shortened to murder in the red barn. And yeah, it opens up on the barn and it's a big party. And you see the character of Maria, I think, first as the really beautiful, you know, very young woman who is being romanced by a man who's quite a bit older looking, at least. I feel like they probably went in that direction because he is a bigger named actor and clearly I don't want to say he's he's a good actor but in that way that's really overacting straight straight from the get-go and that is William Quarter's character yeah yeah and I mean he's like quickly established to be sort of a, a man of great importance right the Martin family's there they're thanking him for I guess his participation in this event yes and I looked up because a squire, I believe that the definition, so he is Squire William Quarter, and the definition is, I guess he's like a big deal landowner. I don't know if he like owns the most land in the village is how you get the title. I don't know. It was, it's a little weird because it's, it's been a title for a long time, but meaning different things. So I think the definition was, he was kind of like the primary landowner, which obviously goes along with having quite a bit of wealth. And they're interchanging this with his name. So they're they're calling him Squire a lot. And you're sitting there going, okay, who's Squire? And then they they call him Quarter. <laughs> so, you know, a bit of that. And it's like kind of orienting myself to, to that and being like, okay, well, he's obviously the bad guy, but he's got a couple of names. So this is when we first meet Carlos and that he has an interest in Maria. And he's sort of, there's a little bit of a, I guess, there's tension between the two. Yeah. He is clearly very interested in her. And she must be somewhat interested in him because she excuses herself when she sees him in the corner. He's much better looking than William Quarter. Oh, a million times better. Yeah. Even with his uh, weird little mustache. Yeah. The mustache, you know, is yeah, it, look, it looks pretty good on him. Yeah. I'll yeah. give him that much. Yeah. It wasn't like a pervy mustache. It was like a John Waters mustache. Yeah. So not pervy. No, like cool. Like. Vincent Price, John Waters, they pull off mustaches beautifully. Sure. <laughs> you don't look convinced. Whatever. I'm going to shave off all of my beard and leave a tiny mustache. How do you feel about that? I'm going to shave off your tiny mustache while you sleep. <laughs> no. And I'll grow it right back. It'll grow back in like a day anyway, so it's all, it's all good. So like you said, she excuses herself, but there's a moment where there's a fortune teller, one of the members of the group of gypsies. She ends up reading the fortune of of William of quarter and uh, she she grabs him and says I see death a figure hanging from a rope and he freaks out about this he is not happy um well, would you be happy no he's already has a he's already a guilty guilty man of probably all sorts of things before this movie starts so he's mad and uh she says that you know the fates never lie. Anyway, we get back to the song and dance, and it's happy again. Um, right? We're like, yeah. So the I think the Martins who are throwing the party end up kicking out the gypsy and Carlos, who is Maria's you know, sort of lover. I want to say at that point, it's he's maybe her ex lover because it seems like her father kind of put an end to the relationship, but he's still sniffing around a bit, and you know he gets kicked out also and that's kind of the the end of the party scene but it definitely is great foreshadowing for what is to come yeah and this is when mary visits squire at yes. william quarter yes so during the party it seemed that william quarter made his intentions towards maria pretty clear 
and you know Maria obviously reciprocated. So she sneaks out that night. She tells her mom that she's going to choir practice and goes out and sees the squire. And yeah, this is a a really interesting um scene in 1935 terms because it's implicit or explicit. It's implicit rather than explicit. Yes. <laughs> That, you, that. you can imagine in a modern movie, you would probably at least see some boobies, but it's implied through a cut screen that Maria and William Corder do have sex. So before that, he makes promises to her about you know, taking her to London. He starts plying her with drinks and it cuts back to Maria's parents. And the dad comes home wondering where Maria is. The mom says she's at choir practice, but the dad knows that choir practice was canceled. So he assumes that Maria's out seeing the gypsy. And then when it cuts back to Maria and William Corder, you know, she's she's already completely fully dressed again. I think just her hat is off, but she's, you know, crying. And he's like, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Here, let me help you out. You better leave through the window so no one sees you. Goodbye. Good night. See you later. Yeah, um, he's awful. Oh my God, he's awful. But yeah, so Maria goes back home. She actually runs into Carlos on the way and her father ends up coming out and of course seeing her with Carlos. Oh, this and... is great though because like Carlos comes up and you know that Maria's father is is like looking for her. So you know they're going to get caught and they do get caught and it's, yeah, it's like really awful because like poor Carlos just feels so bad for him because he just, he keeps getting in trouble. Yes doing nothing wrong he's you know trying to really do the right thing right but of course the next day thomas martin maria's father goes to see none other than william quarter to complain about the gypsies and to say that carlos kept maria out all night even though you know william quarter knows that she was with him yeah, was, he, he kind of is like, like what do you know yeah <laughs> like oh yeah but then he's like oh no it was with with that carlos and he's like, oh, whew. yeah. All right. It, 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 are you sure it wasn't me? No. <laughs> he gets oh he gosh. gets away with it. Yes. Yes. No, they talk about running the gypsies out. And this is kind of that hint because this is kind of the third time it's happened where that idea of people persecuting the gypsies and that culture, I think we see that a lot in film. And this one in particular has impact on on what happens. Yes. And William Quarter tells Maria's father that he's going to leave for London for some time, which, you know, he had told Maria that he was going to take her with him. But of course, he's not planning to. He's um, immediately broken his promise. Yes. And before he leaves, he loses 6,000 pounds during uh, gambling. And he tells the person that he lost the money to that he's going to marry this rich woman and he'll have the money by the next month. And then uh, one of his, I guess, uh, friends is like, how are you sure? That's a lot of money. And he's like, oh, yeah, I got this. Yes. And he does. He, I guess, back in London, uh, he approaches that woman that he said was very wealthy and charms her immediately. And the next thing you know, he's returning back to town with a marriage announcement, you know, that it's happening and all the paperwork to sign. Meanwhile, it's like they make it very clear that Maria is pregnant. Yes. You see Maria is kind of sick and weak and she tells her mom what happened and begs her not to tell her dad. But her dad's like walking in at the time. And he's like, oh, door, I yeah. heard you ladies aren't going to keep your secrets from me. Yeah. Out. 
out. I disown you. Immediately disowns her. Immediately disowns her. I guess he's assuming that the baby belongs to Carlos, the gypsy, but it, we know that it doesn't and she knows that it doesn't. So she goes to see William Corder, uh. who is just returned to town, engaged to a very wealthy woman who's going to you know sign over as dowry money that will erase his gambling debts and and they keep having these these rendezvous that are secret where he's like making her come in through the window and then always has like the door to the front room locked. yes yes i guess so there's no witness that she was ever there yep he can disavow it because if no one saw her she wasn't there i guess so she goes there and tells him about the baby and basically says that if he can't make things right with her, she is going to tell her dad that he is the father. And which I have learned from all these movies with villainous people, don't tell the villain your plans. It's not her fault. I mean, it's really not her fault, but it's always, your. it's like, no, now he knows he's going to kill you. Yes. And when she comes back at him you know, with that threat after he doesn't immediately say, you know, that he's going to drop everything and marry her instead, he... <laughs> says that it was all a test and now I know that you truly love me and we're going to run away together and get married tonight. And and, <laughs> and it's like he, ha he has this plan in place. Like he just pulls out of his pocket and it's like, here's the thing though. It's not only just uh, I'm going to distract you by like telling you something good. It felt to me, I mean, even though I know it's going to happen, I was like, this is when he's going to offer. He is going to murder this poor woman. It's... Oh my gosh, he's such a villain. He's the most villainy villain that's ever villained. <laughs> Tagline. Yep. So he tells her that he's going to meet her. No, it's not at the barn. It's kind of like some meeting spot close to the barn. She goes on ahead, of course, through the window. And actually, while she's there, she ends up being found by Carlos. So you know, he just happens upon her, but I guess has maybe been looking around for her. And, and he says that he wants to run away with her and get married and start life anew. And it almost seems like if she wasn't pregnant, she might have done it because she says to him that it's too late. You know, and that's what kind of makes me think it's like, oh, it's just gets the uh, it gets my heartstrings. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, she he doesn't know that she's pregnant. Yeah. We does. The audience do. It's like, ah, it's just, yeah. yeah, it's tough. Yeah. But the squire shows up and at the same time, a big storm is coming. So he says, let's go hide in the red barn. Yeah. Look over there. How about this red barn? Let's go chill out. Yeah. Let's Netflix and chill. Yep. In the barn. Yep. And he. He goes in and he locks the door and she asks why he's locking the door. And uh, he says, you'll be a bride of death. He says that. He says that. That's, that's a, a true line from the movie. It escalates very quickly. It escalates very quickly. And it's it's a spectacle, but it's all it's also quite, quite incredible. I don't know. I liked it. It's crazy and weird, but I liked it. Yeah, I was I was. <laughs> writing my notes down i like look down and look up and she's dead it was like yeah so, he, well, so fast he chases her through the barn first though that it's like something out of scooby-doo like arms raised like the weird like way that he's chasing her it's just feels like a monster movie almost yeah well here's where they tie in a little bit to the the real life just the premonition aspect of it in that maria's mother has a moment where she like she feels like Something kind of like, uh, I guess, Obi-Wan when Alderaan blew up. Like, she, she she has that, there's been a great disturbance in the forest. 
Yes, yes. The moment that Maria Martin is shot, they show her mom kind of screaming and collapsing at the house. I believe she says it's as if millions of lives were shouting out and were suddenly silenced. Is that what the quote was? I believe that is the exact quote from this movie, this movie from 1935. Yeah, and yeah. then George Lucas stole it. Yes. Oh, yeah. no, I'm sorry. No, it, it was really sad. I thought it was a very, a very nice touch. Um, and that, that kind of phenomenon has been reported before, kind of a weird premonition or a connection where you could feel when something bad happens, even though there's no reason for you to. My mom does that all the time. She'll call up and be like, hey, what's going on? And I'll be like, oh, this thing happened. She's like, I knew it. <laughs> Your mom does do that all the time. Yeah. So you were, you were mentioning how the kind of arms are kind of sprawled out and there's a very like dark moment of him dragging her body across the floor of the red barn yep and then it's the, the burial scene yeah he buries her as he's burying her so i guess this is a bit like you know the handkerchief in the true story it's he drops his gun and kind of accidentally buries that conveniently right next to the body yeah and i thought that was cool is a, a scene that gives you a little hope that he'll be identified yes at, I mean, at the end. Spoiler alert. Yeah. I don't know why I said it like that. Spoiler alert. So the storm, the, the other thing, it's like the lines he says during the scene are just horrifying. It's like the storm is crashing and the thunder's crashing and there's lightning. And he says, wake her now if you can. I just wish I could personally hand deliver a copy of this movie to everyone. I don't believe it's available anywhere except YouTube, but you didn't hear it from me. Um, I just, I, I want everyone to watch it because I just want to be able to go up to anyone on the street and be like, what did you think of Murder in the Red Barn? They'll be like, oh, I love the overacting. It was like a time capsule of movie history. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It was, if you, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so many moments that sold me on it. So it was a just, it just gets better and better. Yes, yes. So the parents are kind of starting to worry now, even though, no, they did disown her. But the fact that she's basically disappeared off of the face of the planet and they think that Carlos had something to do with it. And meanwhile, Carlos believes that William Corder had something to do with it. He's very suspicious. So he goes and sneaks into William Corder's office through the that same kind of window into the study that Maria would go through and he hides behind the screen in the back of the room as William Corder comes in and signs the paperwork to get his 6,000, I guess it's not pounds, it's guineas, 6,000 guineas yeah. um, from his, his new betrothed. And when, <laughs> this is the best, so when William Corder is alone in the room from behind the screen, Carlos takes out a dagger and he throws it towards the squire and it goes down and goes right through the paper that he had just signed into the table. And he comes out and he demands the truth. It's an amazing <laughs> moment. Oh, man. You shouted. Yeah, you're like, yes. <laughs> we were both clapping, cheering. Yes. So William Quarter is at first saying that he you know, didn't know anything. He wasn't involved. And I think there's there's a moment where he's kind of busted because... He says that he knows that Carlos met with Maria that night. And Carlos says, well, how could you have known that if you weren't there? Yeah, yeah. It's like, um, he's got him. He's got him, right? We got him. Yeah. We got him. Presses the button yeah. like in John Oliver. <laughs> um, but but because of his, uh, I guess, his business partners or whatever, his, his buddies are kind of in the other room. 
I guess he just feels confident that he can turn the tables and blame Carlos. Yes. So one of his friends comes back into the room and Carlos hides, but he's got his knife and he says, I never miss. So don't try to tell him anything or else I'm going to basically kill you. But William Quarter, Foxy, Mr. Sneaky Sly Man, writes a note to the friend saying that he needs to, to send help because he's in trouble. And when the friend leaves, Carlos comes out and William Quarter brags that you know he sent the message and the police are coming and Carlos runs away. And but he does not run away clean because Squire shoots him a bit. Yes, the Squire is able to shoot him and they send you know dogs and a bunch of men. William Quarter gives out guns to everyone and they chase him all the way to the Red, the Red Barn. Barn. <laughs> And everything happens so fast from here out. Yes. So Carlos is cornered in the barn and they're, you know, busting down the door. They're able to break in and come inside. And William Quarter wants to just shoot him and kill him. But they kind of insist, no, we need to take him, you know, to court. He needs to be tried for the murder of Maria Martin. Thankfully, the so. police come when they do. In this case, yes. you know, it's like the good timing. And also, I feel like dogs are terrifying when they're chasing you in a movie. But this time they help out because yes. the dog, the dog, oh man, runs to a certain spot in the barn and starts digging, right? Yeah. Yes. And Carlos kind of knows immediately. And you can see on William Quarter's face, like, oh, busted. So and Carlos is like, basically says, William Quarter did it. You know, that dog is digging. Is that where Maria's body is buried? And the group of them go back. And I think everyone's starting to get a little suspicious now because William Quarter is acting very strange and he does not want to dig up that spot. He does not want the dog to dig, dig up that spot. And someone hands him a shovel and tells Squire Quarter you dig to and you'll start like it. digging. Yep. So he starts digging and digging. And the first thing that's uncovered is the gun. Yes. And the gun essentially has William Quarter's name on it. It's a match to... The same guns that William Quarter gave everyone to go out and hunt Carlos. Yeah, isn't there a thing where it's like, oh, it's got his name right here. Or whatever. <laughs> I think the first thing is like, this gun is an exact pair to this one that you gave me. Oh, wait, look, it has your name on it. <laughs> so he digs a little bit more and finds her body and he just snaps. He totally snaps. Yes. Oh, my gosh. He's like, it wasn't me, but I said, oh, no, no, no. Yes. He you have to see this movie because this re this part is just amazing. Yes, he really does sound like Gollum when he is finally admitting to killing her and he like grabs one of the guns and is starting to shoot everyone and then looks in the grave and sees her and just like, yeah, it's it's incredible. The princess is speaking back to me. The princess yep. she speaks to me. Yep. She deserved to die. It says she made him do it. Uh, is a big one and um, he's basically he's taken to custody he's brought to jail they don't show any of the trial I think by the time you see him next he's awaiting execution and they're building the the gallows yes yes you hear the hammering and he's kind of freaking out I guess they say the executioner fell ill and he thinks that it might be delayed further but they have a volunteer they, just like in Hunger Games they do have a volunteer the volunteer is spoiler alert 
Carlos. Oh, the my hero. Goodness. Yes. Yes. It's an excellent reveal. He's kind of brought in with like the hood on, dressed all in black. He looks like like a Dementor from Harry Potter. And they slowly take him out to the gallows and they pull him up. And I think they they ask him, like, do you, you know, do you want to see your your executioner? And Carlos takes off the mask and it's him. And they don't actually show him, you know, hanging. It like cuts right when his hand's on the lever about to pull it, but we all know. And it's excellent. Chelsea approved. David approved too. <laughs> and as all these older movies do, it's like suddenly over the end. And then there's really not much because, you know, credits are short back then. No stinger? No stinger. Yeah. But uh, gosh, ah, what a great movie. That's uh, Maria Martin or Murder in the Red Barn from 1935. Yes. Our oldest movie yet. Probably the oldest that we're going to cover, I oh. imagine. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Wasn't Nosferatu based on a true crime? I would like to maybe at some point talk about Dracula adaptations and Vlad the Impaler, but maybe next Halloween. Yeah, or maybe the Halloween after that. Yep, we'll keep this bad boy going. Are years? You'll never be rid of us. That's right. Never, ever. All right, cool. Well, um, I had a great time watching this with you. I had a great time watching this with you. Awesome. All right, well, that's the movie, so please check it out. I do think there are like DVDs out there here and there. So just keep an eye out. Chelsea mentioned something else too earlier. I don't remember what it was, but email me. I could hook you up. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, thanks for sticking with us for this movie. Amazing. Highest recommendation. Well, maybe not highest, but it's cool. All right, I'm going to shut up now. All right, well, let's jump into our now playing. Chelsea, have you had time to think about it? Do you have a now playing? Yes. So my now playing is a podcast that we've talked about a few times on the show. We played their promo. This is the Off the Cuffs podcast. They're excellent. They've been so supportive of us from the beginning and we're really excited to have them on our uh, next full episode. They're going to do a little guest bit talking about a movie that they actually recommended for us. But I did want to just play their promo as a reminder. So they're a BDSM podcast. And hopefully if uh, that's your jam, you will check them out. So this is their promo. Hey everyone, it's Dick. And Max. The hosts of Off the Cuffs, a kink and BDSM podcast. A podcast for those in the lifestyle and those who are curious about it. Each week we sit down with a different guest to discuss their radioactive spider bite into kink. And it gives everybody a chance to express themselves in matters of sexuality. And a platform in which to express it. It's conversational, it's educational, and it's a lot of fun. More and more people have been reaching out to us telling us what they've learned about themselves just from us sharing our stories with each other every week. So find Off the Cuffs on iTunes or your favorite podcast streaming service and follow us on twitter and instagram at ocp kink so david what is your now playing well i just finished a book Woohoo! <laughs> finishing books is like a challenge these days there's a lot going on but i did just uh, complete my best friend's exorcism by grady hendrix and i'd mentioned this a couple episodes back that i believe it was still a now playing so Anytime I mention a book, it's probably going to be a multi-episode arc before I talk about having finished it. And it was amazing. I think I kind of talked about what it is about a while back, but basically it takes place in 1988. It's a little bit of a flashback and it's about two high school sophomores, Abby and Gretchen and their best friends. And Gretchen becomes possessed. And yes, it is an actual supernatural possession. It is not a cop out where it's fake. And I really enjoyed it. So that's it. Um, Grady Hendrix is an author that this is the first book of his that I've read. But there's another one that is highly recommended that I want to check out soon called Horror Store. 
On the cover of that is, well, it looks like an Ikea catalog, and it takes place in a fictional Ikea-like store. That horror movie scenarios, I guess, happen, or supernatural scary things. And he has a new book called Paperbacks from Hell that chronicle film adaptations in novel form of movies. So that's uh, that's my now plane. All right, do you have a coming soon? My coming soon is that Christmas Prince movie on Netflix. <laughs> okay. I'm stoked. I'm ready. It's finally after Thanksgiving, which means that David needs to let me do all of the Christmassy things that I want to do. And Netflix has a new original movie that I really know nothing about except that it's called Christmas Prince and it looks lame and I can't wait to make David watch it with me. Oh, right on. Yeah. We already watched, what was it? We watched The Christmas Train and Finding Father Christmas, both on Hallmark Channel this weekend. So just gird your loins, David. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I think when I came across that, I mentioned it. So that's all my so fault. It, it, it is your fault. I mean, I would have seen it eventually. But yeah, you're just <laughs> you're encouraging me and you really shouldn't. That's fine. We'll throw in a Silent Night, Deadly Night here and there. and It'll all be good. Yes. So what is your coming soon, David? Well, I just picked up a copy of Stephen King's Just After Sunset Stories, and it's uh, another one of his collections of short stories. I think it came out a couple of years ago. And I yeah, it was just a, what's the right word? A, a cold buy? Uh, I don't know. I just bought it on my Kindle. It was pretty cheap. As long as you don't read me in the tall grass again from that other short story collection. Oh, yeah. that was traumatic. But I stopped reading that one halfway through to you, right? Yes, because I told you that if a fetus gets eaten, I don't want to hear it. And then you said, okay, then you don't want to hear it. So then I knew it happened anyway. So it was just as disturbing. Oh, that's right. It's only one baby though. God. Oof. Anyway, that's it. Coming soon. Now playings. Yep. That's it. Wrap this up. All right. Well, thanks guys for sticking with us through this episode. Uh, we had a lot of fun. We really enjoyed the movie and I know the case is kind of grueling, but I think it's fascinating. I think it's a really good case. It's not as grueling as Night Stalker. Yeah, I mean, it's one murder, but I mean, all murders are awful. So just giving respect to the dead. Oh, I mean, not the dead, the William Corden. I just turned him into a book. <laughs> yeah, William Corden into a book. Um, All right. Well, please check us out on Instagram at Based on a True Crime. Check us out on our new Facebook discussion group, Cult of Based on a True Crime. Yes, we're having so much fun there. And probably by the time you're hearing this, we will have a poll set up. We're going to have our members uh, vote for what our Christmas episode will be. Yeah, and it's a closed group, but please click on the invite button if you search for it, Cult of Based on True Crime. You can get there also from our Facebook page. Uh, we have a link to it there as well. And then you can, as I said, Facebook page, whatever Facebook page, it's the name of our podcast and Twitter, pretty active on that. Chelsea is uh, really rocking on our Twitter account. It is at True Crime Based. You can check out our website based on a true crime.com. And please email us based on a true crime at gmail.com. Other than that, rate and review us. Yes, we're up to 55 now and I'm still not satisfied. More, more. Give me more reviews. Unless you don't like my laugh, then keep it to yourself. <laughs> yes. Yep. All right. Cool. Well, um, just, you know, I mean, really, it all comes down to this. And you got to remember that death is but a door. And time is but a window. We will be back.
It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.